Acts chapter 9. We're going to continue in our series called Tales of Wonder. The result of the resurrection was that the earliest followers of Jesus continued to be surprised by how God would interrupt their life and their community and bring these unexpected moments that would transform them again and again. And we're a community that seeks to not just understand but participate in resurrection life. And that sounds like maybe a, a, a good church thing to say. But for me, it's really true. I want to participate in resurrection life. I don't, I don't just want to observe and appreciate Christ's death and resurrection from a distance. I want to understand it in a way that impacts who I am and impacts my daily existence and impacts my family and impacts my job and impacts the people I know and my extended family and everything else about me. I want it to be saturated with resurrection life. And so I want to know about these ways that God can and will surprise me because if I can anticipate if I can anticipate the surprise if I can anticipate that he is the God who will surprise me I genuinely believe that I'll be more aware of resurrection life as it happens in my day-to-day existence I like surprises my, my dad is not as much a fan of surprises Neither is my sister. I, th- I genuinely think it's like a genetic thing. One time my dad was surprised by having my grandpa, Grandpa Ken Bombay, visit us, and we took dad out for breakfast at Grainfields, and he's like, we never go to Grainfields. And mom's like, we, we're going to Grainfields today. Like, I'm really excited about Grainfields. He's like, really? Like, that's weird. <laughs> it's a weird thing to be excited about. So we went into Grainfields, and there was Grandpa Ken, and my dad went ashen white and didn't recover for like 48 hours. <laughs> he looked like he had seen a ghost. I'm like, Dad, it's just someone you didn't expect happens to be here to celebrate your birthday. And he's just like, just shaken up about it. Just, it was the craziest thing for him. On the flip side, my wife, in our th- second year of marriage or third year of marriage planned a surprise party for me and the way she did it was really clever she made herself busy all day with her friend Ashley and acted like very convincingly that she uh, had no idea that it was my birthday and so the whole day she's like oh I I made some arrangements like could you maybe find something to do so I just sat at home and watched Netflix (laughs) and then we went out for supper kind of like last minute and we're coming back, and I said, babe, I just need to confront you about something, like, it's not a huge deal, but, like, also, it is kind of a big deal that it's, like, my birthday, and, like, I was by myself the whole day watching Netflix, and it wasn't even good Netflix, it was, like, the boring Netflix that you just pick because you have nothing else to do, and we went inside, and, like, all of my friends were there, and all of the family, and, and uh, yeah, it was very nice, and she had the whole, the whole day rearranged for me, but I, I do believe God likes to surprise us. And I do believe that regardless of whether or not we appreciate these surprises, if we learn the way God works in secret, the secret mysteries of God, and if we learn how God surprised the earliest followers of Christ who were participating in resurrection life, 
then I truly believe that we can become a people who are able to observe, able to witness resurrection life as it happens in our day-to-day lives. So here's another story that's quite surprising. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about this passage in a very weird way. Because we're going to talk about the devil today. The devil is not someone that we like to talk about around here very often. We quote Bill Johnson when he says, I only look at the devil long enough to aim. But I think there's some interesting things happening in this passage that just might surprise you because they surprised me. And I also think it's important to talk about because some people inadvertently make Satan into the the other deity that must be opposed. And they import some pagan thinking into their Christianity and they make Satan kind of like the the anti-god that's locked in this struggle of good and evil. And it's weird to realize this and address this, but until we understand what the nature of the devil really is, it's going to be difficult for us to understand exactly how the resurrection overcomes the devil and hell and Satan and all the forces of evil that are on the world today. I truly believe that the resurrection of Christ overcomes all the principalities and powers and every form of evil that exists in the world today. And yet, we see abhorrent atrocities all around us. So how does this work? Well, when we talk about the devil in church, we talk about him in a weird way. Like, for example, I was like probably 20 when I realized that some songs, none of the ones we sing, by the way, but some of the songs we sing in church are like worship songs addressed to Satan. Like, we used to sing the song when I was a kid that went, Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. Anyone, do you remember? Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. It's like this really cool, like, Maranatha praise anthem. I loved it. I was like, yeah, Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. And then my friend, and actually he was the best man at my wedding, Chad, he's like, isn't it weird that we sing a song in the middle of worship to Satan? Like, we're like worshiping the Lord, and then we just stop, and we're like, Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. And there's a whole bunch of these ones. Like, we talk about, like, the God of peace will soon curse Satan underneath your... Do you remember anyone? No? <laughs> or there was another one when I was a kid that was like, shut the door, keep out the devil. Shut the door, keep the devil in the night. Anyone? <laughs> Light a candle, everything is all right. It's like this kind of Jamaican reggae. Nobody? When I, was, when I was about eight, maybe seven, I sang in a kid's quartet that was arranged by my parents. They didn't just arrange the quartet, they wanted to arrange the marriage with one of the girls in our quartet group. And we sang a song, I have video evidence of this, it goes, turn around, turn around, turn around, slam on your brakes, urge, and get out of town before the devil takes you on his way down. Turn around, turn around, turn around. We sing that in church. It becomes very easy to give the devil this role in our lives as this lurking shadowy figure 
that influences world events and influences our lives, and we inadvertently honor the devil far too much. And then we misunderstand how Christ has overcome Satan, the devil, hell, kingdom of darkness, and all its works. And a good example of how Christ overcomes this kingdom is found in our story today. But before going any further, I need to explain why the sermon is entitled Sympathy for the Devil. The reason why is because it's one of the best Rolling Stones songs they ever recorded. And the lyrics are pretty important for today. Mick Jagger wrote this, Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year, stole many a man's soul and faith. And I was round when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain, made dang sure that Pilate washed his hands and sealed his faith. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. But what's puzzling you is the nature of my game. So, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to learn about Saul, the devil hunter. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. You see, Saul is a devil hunter because he's the most orthodox, the most devout, perhaps the most holy of all the Jews entrusted to protect the Torah and Torah practices in the Second Temple period. Later on, Saul will brag about his credentials. And he'll say that he was actually the, devout, the most devout of the devout Jews. And he has been entrusted with this task. He is going to deal with a false perversion and rebellion against the God of Israel. These people are calling themselves the way, and they don't believe that the Messiah is coming. They believe that the Messiah has come, and they gather in the temple, just like all the other Jews do. But instead of reading the Psalms that speak of the coming Messiah, they seem to celebrate that the Messiah is already here in some mysterious way, that he came and lived and died and rose again and is now present in their midst. And this idea is so destructive to Saul that he gets permission to round these people up and stone them to death. And so he begins to go from community to community to find these followers of the way and execute them for religious treason, for blasphemy. And while he's on his way, he sees a light and he hears a voice and he knows... He feels in his heart of hearts this confirmation that he is speaking to the Lord. He's speaking to the God he's serving. 
And the voice says to him, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting them? Why are you persecuting me? The voice of God speaks to his servant Saul, who out of devotion, out of a desire for holiness, out of a reverence for Yahweh, is murdering transgressors, murdering these blasphemous rebels. And the voice that Saul knows is God says, why are you persecuting me? God is still suffering with the people Paul is per- or sorry, Saul is persecuting. And so then Saul says to the Lord, 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 who are you? The voice says, I am Jesus. <laughs> Whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. This is pretty awkward for Saul, right? Because Saul is killing the people who follow Jesus and then he hears a voice. He knows it's God's voice. He's blinded by the light, which, by the way, was the other title for this sermon. (laughs) Rubbed up like a deuce. Anyway. I don't even know what that means, rubbed up like a deuce. I'm not at all a car guy, so I had to Google it. Didn't make any sense to me. This is a better song. Anyway. He's been killing people who follow Jesus in the name of God, and he hears God's voice and finds out that it's Jesus. This is awkward. Talk about an awkward moment. Have you ever been in an awkward moment where you're doing something and you, and you end up talking to the person that you are talking about? Like, my, I'm throwing my, both my parents under the bus today. One time, one time a person in, that wasn't part of our community was at a worship night we were hosting and they sang a very um, inappropriate, spontaneous worship song about giving someone cancer. And it was weird and funny and it was a one-off thing and then we never saw this person again. And so, mom was teaching a group of people now five years later about the prophetic and she was like, you know what? Whatever the Lord shows you, like, it's great. Like, just go for it. Unless, of course you end up singing out like something about cancer. That's not from God. And she told the story about this person who had sung out about cancer, who was probably learning, but it was still very funny. And she's talking to this man, and as she's telling him this story about the prophetic, his face just darkens. And she realizes she's talking to the person the story is about from four years ago. And she goes, oh wait, I can just tell by your face you were the person that did that. And he's like, Yes, and I am so, so sorry. <laughs> and she goes, wait, 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 no, no, no. I am so, so sorry. <laughs> and it turned out that this very, very uncomfortable and awkward moment was a way that God brought reconciliation and a new epilogue to a very funny tale. <laughs> of course, it's a little bit more awkward for Saul because he's actually persecuting and stoning these people to death. But he says, who are you, Lord? And, of course, God says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus is locating himself and participating in the suffering that Saul is causing. And then Jesus says something interesting. He says, go to the city you were going to go to and wait for further instruction. So Saul does. But now the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. 
And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is super interesting to me. It's fascinating and surprising that the goodness and the glory of God revealed to Saul would blind him. But this is one of the things that sometimes happens to us, is when we have an encounter with God, we discover that the thing we see first has to undo the way we used to see. And sometimes there's a gap between the way we used to see and the way we're about to see. And in the middle of this gap, Saul is physically blind. He can't see anything. And so here's the next surprising thing about the story. The people that were with him, his like murder posse, they didn't see anything. They didn't hear anything. But they have to lead Saul by the hand to get him where they were already going. <laughs> sometimes sometimes you, you have to, when you have an encounter with God, you have to take some time to discover what it means and what God is revealing to you. Sometimes it doesn't all come right away. It doesn't all reveal itself right away. Sometimes you realize that you were wrong about something and you feel blinded by it. And it turns out that you need a community who is willing to walk with you and hold your hand even if they didn't see and hear what you did. A lot of people in this day and age are running every which way following different spiritual sources and different inputs and different podcasts, and they're believing this and they're learning that and they're receiving this and they're teaching that, but they're disconnected from a broader community they're doing life with. And what God is going to do through Saul is going to transform the world. Some people say that Saul, who becomes Paul, is the second most important figure on the scope of human history. Because Saul ends up bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, which is like literally everyone else. So the Christianization of the world happens because of Christ, who never writes a book and who primarily influences 12 people. But then Saul takes his message, changes his name to Paul, and spreads it to the entire Roman Empire. I've heard some historians actually rank Paul above Jesus in terms of historical importance. Obviously, that's not my ranking. I rank those historians below the other historians who rank Jesus above Paul. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is this. What Saul is going through is going to not just transform his life, it's going to transform the nations. But in the very first moment of what Saul sees and hears, he has to be led about by the hand of his murder gang. His posse. They got, all the, they got all their boys together, and they're like, we're going to go kill these followers of the way. And he's like, uh, guys, I can't, I can't see anything. I can't, I can't even put one foot in front of the other anymore. I'm blind. Can you, uh, can you walk with me? Your protection from deception is not your grasp of the truth. Your protection from deception is who you do life with. Your protection from deception is not found in your grasp of the truth. Your protection from deception is found in who you do life with. Truth is something that a community must carry. 
So if you run around from here and there and sample from this and that, it's awesome. <laughs> As spiritual father Ken Gill says, you know, a good honeybee samples from all the flowers. By all means, listen to this podcast, take in this teaching, but do life with people, even people who haven't had the encounter that you have had. Remember, the people who are leading Saul by the hand are still like, are we, are we doing some murders this weekend? Like, we down to do some stoning still? Like, that hasn't changed, right? Because like, I'm, I'm good to go if you're good to go. And Saul is still walking with them. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus. The story shifts. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said to him, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So here's the most interesting thing about the story. It now flips to Saul's destination, and it introduces us to this faithful man named Ananias, who is a follower of the way. He's actually a target that Saul would have, prior to his encounter, rounded up and killed. And the Lord speaks to him and says, I've arranged a blind date for you. (laughs) Pun intended. The dude who is on his way here to kill you is still on his way here but you're going to meet with him and you're going to pray for him so that he can regain his sight. And what does Ananias say? Ananias says, God, that dude is a devil. He's a bad guy. He's got legal authority. He's got a license to kill me. Saul is on his way to persecute Ananias for being metaphorically speaking, a devil to Orthodox Jewish faith. And Ananias is waiting before the Lord faithfully, and he's called to go to his own devil, the guy who's literally rounding their people up and killing them. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. This is where we're going to talk a little bit about the devil. We're going to go back to to Acts chapter 9, but I want to read Mark chapter 3. This is actually one of the primary teachings Jesus has about the devil. And I used to think of it very differently, and now I'm on a journey to understand exactly how the satanic works and operates, because I don't want to be a Satanist. You know, the other day I read that the Satanic Temple, I think it's like in Ohio, put up a statue to Baphomet in their public square because in the States, they're way more cool with the mixture of church and state, so Christians get to put up like the Ten Commandments, and this like local group of Satanists are like, hey, if you guys get your thing, we're going to get our thing. So they put up this statue of like a goat or something, I'm not quite sure, and like all these goth people are like moping around like, we're so happy we got our 
statue now or whatever. And there's a bunch of Christians that are up in arms. And I saw from the newscast, there's like a woman who's like holding up an angel. And she's like trying to like rebuke the Satanists, right? And the Satanists are like, no, man, we're cool. And they're probably smoking weed or something. And, and that's how we think of Satanism. We think of it as people wearing heavy eyeliner and, and I don't know, killing cats or something. But what I've discovered is that Satanism is far more perverse and, and far more, it's far more perverse and far more subtle and far more possible as a motive to enter into my heart than I ever realized. So in, the, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus calls the 12 and he, and he appoints them to preach the gospel and cast out demons. And then verse 20, it says, He came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. That's how intense and how crammed this crowd was. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. The scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided, it cannot stand and is itself coming to an end. I used to think that Jesus was just presenting them with a logical paradox to prove to them that he was not Satan. And now I'm realizing that Jesus' question is actually revealing the way the world is organized and structured. Because what Jesus is not saying is that I can't be Satan because Satan wouldn't fight Satan. Jesus is actually saying, the way we cast out Satan is always by Satan. The way we deal with the Satanic is to act Satanic. The word Satan actually means the adversary or the accuser. And what's strange about this word is that in its earliest conception, Satan was actually considered part of the host that the Lord, Yahweh, would bring before him as his company of divine beings. So if you read in the Old Testament when it talks about the Lord of hosts, we now understand that that means the Lord of the angels, right? The angelic presence. But early followers of Yahweh weren't necessarily monotheists. And so they thought of Yahweh as the God above the gods, and some of the gods were on his side, and some of the gods were against him. And one of the gods who was sort of on his side, but also sort of against him, was this voice of the accuser, the prosecutor. And we see this in the book of Job, which is one of the earliest texts in the Old Testament to be written. And so this voice of the accuser, this Satan, is before the throne of God, and he's the prosecutor. So he comes against Job, and he says, Job is righteous, yes, but he's only righteous because you bless him. And so this demigod that's under Yahweh advocates for God to remove his protection from Job so that when this Satan, this adversary, opposes him, Job will curse God and will prove that his righteousness is only a condition of being blessed. It's not actually internal to him at all. And of course, as the thinking about Satan developed, it became more and more clear, of course, to today, where now we picture him as this red demon with horns on his head and a pitchfork, right? 
And maybe he's popping up on Bugs Bunny's one shoulder where there's like an angelic version that's popping up on the other shoulder. But what Jesus is actually unpacking for us is the mystery of how human civilizations have been organized and structured from the very beginning. What do I mean by this? I was going to start with an explanation, and I can see from some of your faces that you're looking at me like, what is going on here? So I'm going to actually start with the example, and I'll work my way backward to the explanation. What I'm about to say is not a reflection of my current views. It's just an observation about the way the world seems to be. Okay? Everybody in the United States seemed to think, at least everyone who cared, everyone seemed to think that the political system was broken. Some people thought it was broken and they wanted to fix it this way. Some people thought it was broken and they wanted to fix it that way. But what turned out to be the case, in case any of you were in a coma for the past three years, was a guy named Donald Trump, who's never held office, doesn't have much political experience, is primarily known as a reality TV star, ended up winning the primary and then winning the election. And he is now the President of the United States. Some people believe he is the very best thing that has ever happened to America. Like they put him next to George Washington in their pictures. And then other people think he is the very worst person since Satan. And it seems like there is nobody in the middle. Have you noticed this? And suddenly, all the problems about U.S. politics are either going to be solved by Donald Trump as a savior... Or they're caused by Donald Trump because he's the devil. And everything, all of the conflict between both sides is now localized in a person with orange coiffed hair. <laughs> Have we noticed this? Is this? I'm just making an observation. This is what I'm talking about when I say that Satan always casts out Satan. When a group of people want to get together and want to organize themselves in a society... Think about early human civilizations moving from being uh, tribes, uh, tribes and nomadic hunters into organized communities, cities around farmland. When we made the transition into becoming local regions, suddenly there's a limited amount of resources and everybody is competing for the same thing. How do we organize ourselves in such a way that we all get along? Because everybody is possibly going to kill their neighbor for the same resources. What do we do? We organize ourselves around a very simple, seductive idea. The idea is that we take a person and we make them the incarnation of our problems and we sacrifice them so that we can all have peace. This person can either be a god to us or a devil. The only thing that matters is that we accuse them of being our Satan so that we can either kill them or cast them out. So, to go back to my example about Donald Trump, and by, believe me, this is by far way too much conversation about him. I don't like talking about him, but I, I feel like it's just right in front of my face 24-7. Have you ever felt that way? It's like all the stuff that's going on is like right here and you just can't get around it? Here's the reason why. 
Because human civilization has always organized itself around the principle of accusation. The things that are against us and the things that are in our way are actually people. People are our problem, and they become our enemy. And when we get enough people on our side to accuse the same person, we now have a perfect scapegoat. And when we kill the scapegoat, or when we drive it out from our midst, we have a temporary but satisfying peace. It says that the high priest and Pilate were normally against one another, and then once they killed Jesus, it says they got along from that day forward. What brought them together? They killed the same guy. There's nothing that makes friends like having the same enemy. Now, this sounds very extreme and intense, but it doesn't always have to be extreme and intense. You have problems at your workplace, and I bet you that if you interviewed the other coworkers and maybe even sought your own heart, you would probably be able to identify the person who is the problem in your workplace. Like there's some gossip going on in your workplace, but you know what? If Mary Sue would just keep her mouth shut, a lot of the gossip would go away. And I've even been talking to the other employees about Mary Sue and how she has a gossip problem. I'm not gossiping. Mary Sue is the gossip. If only Mary Sue would stop gossiping, then the rest of us wouldn't have to gossip about Mary Sue. I very quickly chose the name Mary Sue because I scanned the congregation. I was like, I don't want to use your name. I don't want to use your name. <laughs> the world is organized this way because we have desires. They're built into our bodies and into our souls and into our spirits. And the way we learn how to navigate our own desires is through a process called imitation. We learn what we want and we learn what we value, primarily first from our parents and then from our immediate community. But the problem is, is we learn what we want from what other people want, and the moment we want what other people want, they become a rival for that thing. Imagine two kids in a room playing with many toys. One kid goes and takes the red ball. The other kid notices the kid with the red ball. Suddenly, the kid that doesn't have the red ball wants the red ball. And there's only one. And you're like, there's a thousand toys in this room. Why do you want the one thing you can't have? Because the other person wants it. So I look at another person to find out what I want, but once I see what they want and it becomes what I want, we are now rivals over the one thing that we can't seem to share. So what does a good parent do when two kids want the same toy? If you can't figure out how to get along, I'm going to pop it right in front of you. No, I'm kidding. What you do is you put it up on a shelf, right? You remove it from the situation. You make it the scapegoat. And now suddenly there's peace. Imagine, imagine two brothers fighting over the same girl. As one moves towards her and thinks he's going to enter into a relationship with her, the other one thinks, man, I've actually loved her this whole time. And so suddenly they're now rivals for the same person, right? This hasn't happened before, has it? No. They're both rivals for the same person. But what turns out is eventually they realize that their relationship is more important than her. So how do they navigate this? She was horrible. I'm so glad you didn't end up with her, and I'm so glad I didn't either. She was the thing that came between us. 
see, the way the world is organized is it's organized around an undergirding structure of accusation. We make people the problem incarnate. And in our heart, because we don't know how to navigate our desires and we don't know who to imitate, we become rivals, and the only way we're going to have peace is to make the thing we want into the victim. So think about these religious leaders. They're watching Jesus cast demons out of people. They're watching Jesus liberate the oppressed. Believe me, when you're a religious leader and you see another religious leader just crushing it, there's a little bit of jealousy there. There's a little bit of envy. If you want to be a good preacher and there's another guy down the street who's a better preacher than you, it's going to bother you a little bit. Jesus is moving heaven and earth. And so what is the easiest way for them to deal with their desire to be like Jesus and also to be rid of Jesus? He is a demon. That's how he's doing this. He's, he's demonized. He's casting out demons because he's a demon. It's a very convenient way to make Jesus the scapegoat for their own problems in their own desires. Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? This is how the way the world has always been organized. We vote a person in because they're going to be our savior. Then they make bad choices. We make them our devil. We cast them out of office and we vote in a new savior. And nowhere along the way do we stop and realize we were the one voting the first guy in and the second guy in. I'm never guilty. Stephen Harper was guilty and now Justin Trudeau is guilty and the next person's going to be guilty. But don't you worry, I've got this thing figured out. I am willing to put the lens of accusation on everyone other than me. We, we have people who have... <laughs> this is going to just sound so silly, but it's true. We've had many people who have left the church, this church, because they say that the leadership of this church is not accepting or inclusive. And one person I said... So you're excluding me for not being inclusive toward other people. I said, look, I want actually to have a relationship with you. I don't want you to leave. But you have told me that I am excluding people. And so now you will exclude me for excluding people. And we see this organizing principle undergird the fabric of so many things. I was at the co-op the other day. This is now maybe a month back, right? I'm at the co-op, and there's a group of people that are picketing for some reason. I don't really know. I'm not paying attention. (laughs) They're picketing because the other guy is unfair and wrong and bad, right? Say no to co-op. The union is on strike. So then you talk to these people and they say, well, you know, the leadership of the co-op is just being greedy and they just want more money and they're just not standing according to their values. And then you talk to the people at the co-op and they're like, yeah, the union is just being greedy and they're just abusing their people and they just aren't standing by their values. And you go, wait a minute, you both think the other one is the bad guy? How does that work? You can't both be the devil. (laughs) Or can you? <laughs> I 
These accusations are never benign. They force the person who is accused to act in accordance with the accusation to become the physical embodiment of the problem that everyone else has and is trying to get rid of. The curses we place upon people come true. Mary Sue, the gossip, really does become the problem with gossip. Because once Mary Sue leaves, suddenly now everyone feels relieved because the problem is gone. Nobody wants to be the next problem after Mary Sue leaves. So for a couple of weeks, you have peace, you have harmony. But the problem is, is that as soon as you cast someone out, you realize that they're not necessarily an innocent victim. Maybe they did have a problem. Maybe, just maybe, Donald Trump isn't the perfect president that was going to save everything. I know, crazy, right? Like, maybe, maybe the problem is that we're not actually able to identify the problem properly, but we feel a sense of, of, of ill-begotten peace by accusing other people. This is why the devil is far less a person and far more a parasite. I believe the devil exists. I just don't think of the devil the way I used to think of the devil. The devil is... The, the, the satanic is the undergirding principle of accusation by which we cast out or kill our enemies in order to have peace within ourselves and within our relationships. And Jesus wants that kingdom to come down. Some people believe that, that Satan is a, is a fallen angel who took a third of the angels with him. That may in fact be true. But if you rebel from God, which is God himself, is the only source of life in the universe, right? In him we live and move and have our being. If you rebel against the source of life and existence itself, you are moving toward non-existence. These spirits are like parasites, and what are they attaching themselves to? They're attaching themselves to human agreement. And what is the agreement about? The agreement is about making other people the enemy. And as soon as we make other people the enemy, they embody the evil that we're trying to get rid of, but that evil then suddenly exists in us. And we get rid of one scapegoat only to find out we need another scapegoat. Does the devil exist? Is the devil real? Yes, the devil is as real as a lie is. Is a lie real? If you believe in it, it's very powerful, very destructive. Is a shadow real? Yes, if something blocks the light. It's the absence of existence. It's the force that wants to keep its power and keep its control and keep its righteousness by making someone else wrong. So what does Jesus say about this kingdom? If the kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. I love this verse because it's actually, I used to think this was about like how demons work. It's actually a verse, in my opinion, about Christ. 
The Orthodox on Saturday, they celebrate a thing called the harrowing of hell. You see, Jesus was the perfect scapegoat. He brought peace between Caesar, and he brought peace between Herod, and he brought peace between Caiaphas. The temple, the kingship, the false kingship, and the ruling occupier, they all got together and had peace because Jesus was crucified. But the difference between Jesus and every other scapegoat was Jesus was innocent. And he didn't open his mouth to defend himself. And he didn't turn around and accuse someone else. Jesus harrowed hell because he joined all the people we've cast out as devils, as the chief of them, but because he is the innocent victim, he alone can go to hell and can harrow it. He can rescue those we have condemned and cursed as our enemies. Jesus binds the strong man because he sees the way the world has been organized and he opposes it by letting himself become its victim. Jesus joins every person we have ever told to go to hell. Then he brings them back to the Father as his reward. And then he says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I just thought I'd just tackle all the fun passages today. <laughs> young Christians everywhere, especially young Christians everywhere, are like, did I commit the unforgivable sin? I think I've committed the unforgivable sin. What is Jesus really talking about here? <coughs> Jesus is saying that the way the world is organized is organized around accusation. It's the strong man that occupies the house. He is going to, as the perfect victim, undo the sacrificial system that requires we kill something or cast it out in order to have peace. He's going to destroy that system. And he says to the ones who called him the prince of demons, that they are going to remain in an eternal sin of unforgiveness. Meaning, the way they are walking, we think of eternity as some time that's coming in the afterlife. That's not how the, the, the ancients thought of eternity. They thought of it as participating in the divine life of God right now. And so when Jesus says they've committed the eternal sin of unforgiveness, he's saying the way of accusation and the way of forgiveness are totally opposite. How does Jesus undo the system of accusation? He hangs on a cross, defenseless, even though he could call down heaven to defend him and says, Father, forgive them. He is so determined to not have enemies that he will let his enemies kill him while crying out for their forgiveness. The Pharisees who call him the prince of demons are living in a perpetual state of unforgiveness. They're living in an ecosystem of unforgiveness because the way they cast out Satan is with the power of Satan. The way they get rid of accusers is accusing. And this is totally the opposite of living in the world in the ecosystem of forgiveness. Do you know what one of the earliest names for the Holy Spirit is in this new Christian community? The paraclete. The advocate. It was the Greek word for the defense attorney that would come to the side of the accused. 
The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to live in a world of accusation where you do not let forgiveness reign. Jumping back to Acts chapter 9. The Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. If you live in an ecosystem of forgiveness instead of an ecosystem of accusation, you will suffer. Because you will still live in a world that's organized around figuring out who the enemies are, and you will be the only one without enemies. So Ananias departed from the house and laying his hands on Saul, he said, this is the most important verse in the whole chapter. Are you ready for this? He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared, who appeared to you on the road which, came, which you came by has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the ecosystem of forgiveness. Ananias calls a murderous Satan, the devil who is killing his friends. Ananias calls him brother. Before he's repented, before he's turned from his ways, Ananias looks at the one person he would be qualified to say is his enemy. And he calls him a brother. And it's when he calls him a brother, it's when he lays his hands on him, it's when he releases the Holy Spirit to Saul that the scales fall from his eyes. Saul gets to see because he has now joined a community, a family centered around forgiveness instead of accusation. This is what allows Saul to see. You see, the way of Satan, the way of the Satan, and the way it works, even in communities like ours, even in a life like mine, and maybe in a life like yours, is that I am tempted to make someone else my enemy when I find out from the death and resurrection of Christ that God does not have enemies. I participate in the satanic not by wearing heavy eyeliner and dancing in front of a goat statue. I participate in the satanic when I need a scapegoat to cast my sins upon so that when I drive them out, I will have a temporary peace. And the worst part of this whole thing is that most Christians won't admit that they have enemies. We just have people that we're struggling with forgiving. We just have people who don't get it. We just have people who have hurt us, and we don't know if we'll ever get over it. <clears throat> what I want to let you know is that the Holy Spirit is the advocate. He's the paraclete. He comes on the opposite of the satanic spirit, and he defends you and I even when we're wrong. Accusation is not valid when you've sinned. Accusation is the spirit that brings about confrontation that leads to condemnation. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that in the ecosystem of forgiveness, there's no ownership or responsibility for wrongs suffered. 
The, the main message that the disciples and the apostles shared with the world was, you killed Christ and God raised him. Right? Because they, they did kill Christ. <laughs> what I'm not saying is that when people sin or transgress that we can't name what has happened. What I'm saying is, is that there's a big difference between sitting in the prosecutor's chair and the defense attorney's chair. And what does it take for us to be people who do not have enemies to the point where we are going to come to the defense and the aid and the brotherhood of those who are actively seeking to destroy us? I am tired of people who think the nonviolent way of Jesus is weak and wimpy and Buddhist or something. It's actually the greatest way of suffering there ever is. Because if you are determined to not make enemies in your heart, and if you are determined to not accuse people even when they're wrong, you will have to suffer for it. Because you're coming up against a strong man that still organizes the ecosystem of the world. Think about the people who oppose you. Think about the people who have spoken against you. Th think about the people who have condemned you and who have made your life miserable. Can you call them a brother? Can you come before them and offer your life and your strength and the spirit of advocacy to them? Can you, like the Holy Spirit, sit as their defense attorney even as they're against you? There are two ways of organizing the world. There are two kingdoms trying to disciple you. One is the way of accusation that leads to death by means of regular sacrifices. The other is a family based on forgiveness where people are, would rather suffer than have enemies. Which way do you want to organize your world? What's those liberals? Those liberals are what's wrong with this country. If we could just get those liberals out, if we could just get those liberals out, we'd get rid of that carbon tax and we would have peace. Would you? Would you have peace? Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> it's my boss. My boss is the problem. If we could just get a new manager in here who understands this place, maybe me. Maybe I'd be the good manager. You know what's wrong with this church? Is the pastoral leadership. There's some great people in this community, but you know what? It's time for some fresh blood. See, once you understand the language of sacrifice and the logic of scapegoating, you see it everywhere, and you still have the choice, do I want to participate in it? Because you can't just say, well, I don't have enemies anymore. Because it's your human instinct, it's your human nature to not want to suffer and to find someone else to do the suffering for you. So the choice is, do you want to organize your life around family and forgiveness? Or do you want to organize your life around enemies that you must sacrifice in order to have peace. Saul was on his way to cast a devil out. And Ananias was telling God that a devil was on his way in. And Saul was healed and Ananias was strengthened when Ananias called Saul a brother. You know what's the probably, the, I'll close with this. You know what's one of the stories that I think about the most often and it convicts me more than almost anything else? The 21 Coptic Christians, the Egyptians who were captured by ISIS, led to a shoreline and were decapitated by terrorists. Every single one of them, as they were being killed, as they were having their head removed from their body, until they could no longer speak or breathe, kept saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. 
And all 21, without exception, had families who said, we forgive the men who killed our sons. One mother said, my only regret is that I cannot, is that I cannot invite the man who killed my son for dinner and make him a meal. But I hope he knows that I forgive him. It's hard to follow a God who does not have enemies. It's hard to realize that we have been finding temporary peace in our lives by scapegoating and accusing other people so that we don't have to look inside ourselves at our own desires, at our own needs. But I would like to invite us to be a community of great forgiveness. You and I have people in our lives, we just do, that need to receive forgiveness. Jesus said, whoever sins you forgive, I forgive. What does that mean? Does it mean that God's forgiveness is conditional upon your declaration? No. But it means that you must actively seek out people and make sure they live under the ecosystem of forgiveness that you carry. It's hard. The people who have hurt me the most, I try to give them like secret gifts. <laughs> That's my way of doing it, like anonymously. If you get an anonymous gift, don't think that you're my enemy, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> 20 bucks showed up in my pocket. That must mean Connor hates me. That's not what that means. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is it, takes, it takes real courage to suffer by looking at the people in your life who have hurt you, who have mistreated you, and who may still be against you and to treat them like family, and to call for their forgiveness. But it's the only other way of organizing the world. So why don't you stand with me? I'd like to pray for us. I'd like us to take courage to release radical acts of forgiveness. I really do believe, I really do believe that there are people in our lives, perhaps in all of our lives, who we're tempted to think of as the devil. <laughs> they might just play that role for us. And I'd like us to be brave with radical acts of forgiveness. I'd like us to take those people that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind, the souls in your life. I, I know that no one is literally seeking to stone you to death, okay? Thank God for that. But I, I really do believe that there are people in our lives who are persecutors, and they have done wrong, and they have hurt us. But I believe that the spirit of advocacy, the paraclete, is here to not just bring us to the place where we can forgive them in our hearts. Oh, oh Jesus, I forgive them in my heart. But where we can forgive them with our actions. Where we can, like Ananias, meet with them personally and call them a friend.